guys, welcome to episode number three of the Smurfit Speaker Series. Today I got the chance to sit down with Mark Maxwell. Mark has an incredible story to tell and he will also be going into detail about how he's helping recent graduates find their way as the founder of GradLife. There are loads of key takeaways from this one, so again, please have a pen at the ready. But without further ado, here is Mark Maxwell. But first of all, could you just bring us back to maybe your secondary school days and give us a bit of background to your lifestyle, hobbies, what you wanted to do in college? Yeah, for sure. And uh, just before I start, thanks a million for having me. I'm really excited about this and was honored to, to get the email. So me in secondary school uh, was very different, I would say, to me now. I was pretty sport-oriented, and by oriented, I mean completely obsessed. Uh, there was nothing really I was that much interested to. I, I, in, I was very into rugby and uh, a bit of tennis as well. But I was in a school that was uh, pretty full of rugby, and a lot of kind of pro players came out of there. Uh, so in that environment, and even before school, that had always been my plan, was to try to uh, achieve glory in that field. But uh, alas, it wasn't to be so. That, uh, that was me as a teenager. It was really just training. all the, Like, to give you an example, before I even went to that school, when I was 11, I used to uh, put my football boots beside my bed so that when I woke up in the morning, I would land in the boots and go out and practice kicking before primary school. That was in sixth class. So that is the, the personality type, I guess, you're dealing with. And, and when applied to a sport in such an environment, it was pretty intense. Very driven indeed, yeah. And then just just leading on from secondary school, what what were your your next steps with regard to going to college and stuff like that, or what kind of path did you take? Uh, my approach to that was maybe unique. It was get in and get out as fast as you can. And so I chose commerce, which was three years. Uh, that was that was literally the main reason I chose it. I was no genius, so I wasn't going to get Eck and Fire or any of those courses. But nor did I want to. I similar, just similar to, to myself, I might add. <laughs> yeah, we have that in common. So. It was really just get in and get out within the three years. And then my big driver was, I probably had two big drivers, uh, make some money and get out of Ireland. And so uh, there was a big part of me and all my guidance counselors all said I should be a barrister. That was actually the kind of number one career path. But uh, it didn't offer the same travel opportunities. And so I just turned it down and um, stuck with business. Uh, And speaking of travel, did you get away anywhere in your kind of younger life that you kind of maybe had a formative experience with travel or was it just something you were interested in? Uh, I, I'd say the, one of the most formative was my uh, French exchange, actually, where I went to Toulouse uh, down in France. And that was just really, really cool. And uh, at that stage, rugby was still very much the goal. But unlike every kid who wanted to be a professional rugby player in Ireland, I didn't want to play for Ireland. I wanted to play for Toulouse. I wanted to have uh, this like dream life of living down in France and, and playing professional sports. So I guess that probably fed into it. Like I always kind of looked maybe a bit outside the box in terms of what uh, what lifestyles were possible outside of just the local one and the Irish one. Brilliant, brilliant. And you found yourself down in Australia then for a period of time post-secondary school as well, did you? Yeah. So my school had an exchange program with two schools down there, uh, which were kind of like similar schools and, and uh, like essentially all boys boarding schools. So I, uh, I was selected to go down and represent the school in that. So the four of us were chosen, two went to each school. Myself and my very good friend, Dermot O'Mara, went down to, uh, to a school called St. Joseph's in Sydney. And um, we just essentially coached sport and did like uh, tutoring and dorm duty and all the sort of stuff, the gardening. Like it was a pretty kind of relaxed uh, job. We worked about 20 hours a week, had our own apartment in Sydney. 
and just had about as much crack as you can imagine, uh, having just left a boarding school, been down in Sydney, making a few pop and a lot of spare time. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Nice. Nice. And how was, uh, how was your, what was your training regime down there? I've heard you on a previous podcast go on about your regime. I'm just wondering if you could uh, fill in the listeners yeah, a bit. For sure. it. It, was, it was pretty intense. So what I would do was I would, uh, I had this weird dream of being as athletic as some of the Polynesian guys who were like 120 kg sprinters. So I was getting up at seven in the morning, doing hill sprints, then coming up, having like a huge breakfast of like uh, six eggs and 12 Weedabix or something ridiculous like that. Then going and doing an upper body session, then uh, in the afternoon, a lower body session, then coaching rugby, then doing a core session in the evening. And I went out about four nights a week. And if I went out, I'd like drink a fair bit, just like any other 18 year old would, I guess. And if I didn't go out, I'd set an alarm at uh, two o'clock in the morning and do a half hour of core, have a protein shake and go back to sleep. That, that last bit I added in for probably the last three or four months. One of the students in the school who I was friends with, his brother was playing for the Western Force and rooming with David Pocock. And Pocock is probably the best athlete in rugby at that stage. And I heard he was doing that. So I decided I need to be doing it as well. So, uh, yeah, pretty obsessive, but it was fun. I actually really enjoyed it at the time. Like it was... Uh, it worked it's definitely driven and, and how did that how did that how did you find that obviously it doesn't sound sustainable or what kind of an impact did it have on your body uh it made it bigger that was for sure it uh it, it was worrying for the people around me the staff members in the school three of them sat me down and actually said hey we're a bit worried about the training uh we think you're overdoing it and uh, that sort of thing and then there was one uh, there was a couple of days where i probably didn't really sleep not not like i did sleep but not much at all and uh, it started to kind of make me a bit like dizzy and that sort of thing as well. So I was too uh, too attached to that regimen and not really taking care of myself at all. Uh, and I'd say it is for that that I paid the ultimate price. And what was the kind of ultimate price going forward? So I did that regime between July and uh, January. So July 2010 to January 2011. And uh, myself, Dermo, and the two other guys, Harry Fehley and Will O'Sullivan, who were in the other school, um, we all went to New Zealand together and we had a great couple of days. We were going to do a three-week tour there and we had a great couple of days uh, jet skiing and stuff up in the North Island and then came back down to Auckland and I was asleep on the back of a bus and I ended up snoring really weirdly and the guys thought I was just kind of like taking the piss, trying to draw attention to them, that sort of thing because uh, that wouldn't be out of character by any means. And then they realized something was actually really wrong and I was kind of like folded over and like couldn't really breathe. So I do a big inhale and then like drop down and they were like shit something's actually really wrong i was going blue in the face so they realized i was going into cardiac arrest uh, stopped the bus carried me off the bus it was actually the bus driver's first day on the job driving for this tourist company the poor guy so the lads carried me off the bus and uh laid me down on the on the side of the motorway and started giving cpr and there was a nurse on board she gave uh, probably better cpr than the guys did i'd imagine um and eventually an ambulance got there picked me up gave me uh what ended up being i think 12 shocks of an external defibrillator and brought me down into hospital in uh, in Auckland where i stayed for three weeks first of which was in a coma second of which i got a pacemaker put in and then the third of which i just kind of recovered for and made sure everything was okay crazy story and, and how, what was the recovery like after an incident like that yeah, so the, the recovery kind of like caught me by surprise. I really thought my recovery was going to be physical, pretty much, because your heart stops, your brain, you know, there's not enough oxygen to the brain, that sort of thing. 
you would think that it's a physical thing, and of course it is. So I didn't say run for a year afterwards, which definitely showed uh, on my waistline. That was the physical recovery. Once I'd done that, I thought I was going to be pretty much there. Uh, there was another element to it, which was like neurological, actually, which was because of the shocks, because of the coma and this sort of thing, I actually didn't really have much of a short-term memory for the first two months after it happened. And uh, I didn't really tell anyone about that. It, the whole incident had been really hard on everyone in my life, obviously. My parents had to fly down to me in New Zealand and that sort of thing. And uh, things were not looking good when they were flying down. So it was, it was really, really tough on everyone. I didn't want to give them any more to deal with. And I didn't want to tell them that, that there might have been brain damage involved as well. So I took this kind of athlete's approach for which I'm actually like in hindsight kind of proud that it made sense that it's actually a, a proven thing. I didn't realize at the time. This athlete approach of like, if you want a bigger shoulders, do pressing. If you want a bigger leg, legs, do squatting. If you want a short-term memory, give it resistance. And a language was a perfect way to get resistance. So I ended up learning Spanish online. And that really helped me recover and got me a short-term memory back and enabled me to, to speak Spanish. And uh, that has its benefits as well. So it was really good. Uh, it was kind of really productive that uh, that brain damage thing was actually an issue at the time. It's really paid its dividends since. And then in terms of other bits of recovery, there's obviously psychological, emotional, like for about two years afterwards, I wouldn't have expected to live to 30. And that was, uh, you know, obviously a pretty dark place for a, a young guy's mind to be. Uh, it's actually 10 years since the incident next January. And I'm going to have a 10 year heart attack party just to celebrate the fact that I did make it 10 years because I really didn't think I was going to for quite a while. And then maybe the most interesting and hardest part of the uh, recovery was like, if you looked at me between year one of recovery and year five, you would have said, like, God, he's recovered remarkably. He's kind of like living like a normal person and it hasn't really left any scars on him, etc. Year six, I was running on a treadmill in a basement gym and I got a shock from my defibrillator, which was my fourth, but easily my scariest shock. I was in a basement gym on my own, music blaring. And I really thought I was going to die. My heart was pounding. My heart was doing 261 beats per minute, which is so scary. And uh, I lay down on the ground and I prayed that I didn't die. I prayed I didn't get a shock and I was like crying already, thinking I was going to die. And that gave me post-traumatic stress disorder. So I made it out of that incident, obviously. But uh, I would have like a nightmare four nights a week and at least one panic attack, I would say, every day. Mild panic attacks, to be fair, but nonetheless. And that lasted for like eight or nine months. So that was a terrible year. Uh, personally, it was interesting because it was a great year in other ways, but um, it was a terrible year personally. And, and the psychological recovery, I thought, had been completed years before, but it turns out it had only really started that year. Uh, it took a while. It obviously took five years for me to fully digest in some way that mortality was, in fact, uh, a real threat. And so, yeah, that was easily the most important and, and hardest year of the recovery so far. And just on that, there's a saying that I've heard that um, everyone has two lives and the second one only begins when you realize you have one. And I'm just wondering how apt is that is that saying and, and how has your perspective changed on life after that incident? That's a, I don't know how I've made it nine and a half years and not heard that saying. That's like, yeah, I love that saying. And I definitely agree <laughs> with it. So that year, year six, the really hard year was 2017. And it was that year that made me believe that saying is true and that, that saying really resonates with me because of 2017 so that shock happened i uh 
have a thing for salsa dancing. I love going out salsa dancing, or used to, at least I used to. So my 25th birthday, January 24th, 2017, I went out salsa dancing and had like six or seven beers or something, not many. And two days later, I don't, I'd been shocked in Fiji before because of my, because I drank the night before and then ran the day up. Stopped doing that after Fiji. I realized I'd leave two days. So I left two days after my birthday on the 26th of January. I went for that basement run and, and you know what happened. That year, I was so sure I was going to die. I was kind of surprised I hadn't already died by the time like May came around because that had been four months. And so I wrote down all of the things that I wanted to do before I died. And I wrote down, I want to start a business. I want to write a book. I want to go to South America and I want to quit my job in Google. So I literally did all of those things. I, uh, I started, I, I, actually, I'll tell the full story behind this. I was having a really hard time with PTSD and I left Sydney to go up north uh, on a holiday on my own, which I still do and I love to do. I, I think going, traveling on your own is the best thing. But I went up to um, far north Queensland where the Great Barrier Reef is called the Whitsundays and hung out there for a week. And I wrote down, first day I wrote down everything I'd become afraid of. I'd become afraid of uh, talking to groups, which I used to love, uh, talking to girls, which I used to love, uh, going for walks on my own and getting in the water. I, used, I became so scared of the water. Then I was scared to quit Google and, and scared to do those four other things I mentioned. So just, that, just on that, Mark, um, how did you find actually heading back to Australia and that part of the world where the incident happened? Was that a big decision or was it something you felt you kind of had to overcome? Uh, it wasn't a big thing. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty smooth, I would say. Um, okay. Yeah, there was something there that really made me want to go back, but uh, it definitely wasn't like a psychological barrier. There was no kind of PTS associated with that. Okay. Um, so yeah that was pretty smooth but that um that week up in in far north queensland was when i just tackled every fear head on and uh identified what i wanted to do and i really identified what you just said that hang on you do actually have one life and you have to do all the things you can't be afraid of the things you're afraid of you need to face them and you need to just write down what you want to do and go and do it so the saying you mentioned really defined the year i had in 2017 which has probably defined where I've gone on uh, since. Brilliant. Uh, if we might just backtrack a little bit, you didn't uh, you didn't just walk into Google straight after college, but you you kind of had another job prior to that. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, it's hard to run the two stories parallel for sure. Um, so I'll run. I'll go from college. I did commerce in UCD and, and did okay. I got a high two one. Uh, one thing I realized in college actually was play to your strengths. It was it became very easy once I learned that lesson because I was good at presenting and public speaking. I was terrible at details and that sort of thing. So for every project, I'd make sure I had a good detail-oriented team and I would do the presentations. And that got me really good grades. So tips for anyone out there who with a similar skill set, it's definitely the way to go. I left commerce. And as I said, my two main drivers were money and travel. And I did an internship in EY uh, the last summer. I was kind of like a lot of people do to go into the big four. Um, great place to work, great people, great everything. It wasn't for me. And I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest. I could see the benefit. I didn't enjoy it. And uh, I was under a usual amount of pressure, nothing extraordinary, but just like your family wants you to get a job and your aunts and uncles tell you what's good for you and that sort of thing. And doing the accounting exams just made a ton of sense. It was kind of like the right thing to do. But I just couldn't pull myself to do it. And I turned down a job in EY. And everyone's like, oh, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. And I said, I'll find something, I'll figure it out. Like, I'll, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
And that was a really good thing for me to just own my own decision and become more of an independent thinker and independent decision maker, which I think is a great part of growing up at that age. I went into final year, probably the only one of my friends without something lined up um, and started networking with those parents down in Sydney who all had done reasonably well and worked in banks and different sorts of things. There was one bank called Macquarie, which is known as the Millionaire Factory, which is absolutely where I wanted to go. And uh, networked with a parent from there and he gave me an internship. So my Easter holiday of final year college, I did one week in Singapore and one week in New York interning with Macquarie. And like my whole, he was like, I can get you a week there. I can't get you anything else. You need to get yourself a job within that week. And so I would be running around the floor meeting everyone asking like, hey, like what are you, if you were me, what would you be doing? And yada, yada, yada. And I met a guy who said, we're hiring in Sydney for uh, an energy analyst role, but it's for someone with two years experience. And I was like, that's fine. Give me the guy's email, I'll email him. And I got my brother essentially to write like an unbelievable email. And then I got the interview and, and my brother taught me up on all the things I needed to know about the energy markets because he worked in them and ended up getting the job. So it, like, it was literally, the, it was Easter break of final year college. So final exams coming up, all this sort of stuff going on um, and had to throw the interviews in on top of it. But thanks to Rob, my brother's support and uh, a bit of luck, I was able to get that job in Sydney and I flew down. I left Ireland a week after finishing exams. Um, and I went and I lived in Singapore for six weeks in a hotel while my Aussie visa came through, which was like unbelievable as a grad straight out of college and then went down to Sydney. So it all worked out. Brilliant. Uh, and it all worked out. But how did you find actually working in Macquarie? Was it, was it all it was cracked up to be? No, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, it looked like I was living the dream because I lived on a beach and worked in the bank and made good money. But I was actually pretty miserable for a lot of it. Um, I was going out loads, which like I maybe helped and didn't help. I don't know. But it just wasn't good. It was my skill set didn't match it. It was very like I was 14 to 16 hours a day on the spreadsheet pretty much and just wasn't really digging that to be honest. And I looked around me and I saw all these people who were making tons of money, like ridiculous amounts of money. And even still, even though I was money motivated to see someone at 44 years old make 15 million that year, I still didn't want to be him when I was 44 years old. And that was a really telling thing because that awoke in me uh, all of the other things that you get out of your career and that you look for in your career that I had never thought of before, uh, be they like balance or uh, personal development, personal growth. One thing I learned is that like, it's a primal thing to want to be a, a big figure or an important figure in a community. That's what we come from, like, you know, in terms of anthropology. And none of the, sorry, it's unfair. I didn't see anyone clearly be that in that group of people. And I said, that's not what I really just want to be like. So uh, I got out of there. I started looking around and uh, a friend was in Google and she was like, you'd love Google. It has exactly what you're talking about. It has great uh, cultural figures and, uh, you know, men who are older than you that you would appreciate if you grew up and, and became like them, which was kind of what I was looking for. I was looking for like professional role models. And uh, she was right. So I joined, I got a job in Google and um, it, in hindsight probably wasn't as hard as it's cracked up to be to be honest but yeah just just uh, on that one it, it seems like you just got a job in google and i think a lot of people would resonate with that it is a great place to work and it probably goes without saying it's probably one of the best cultures to work in but what, what how did you was it again knowing someone involved in inside of google that helped you or was it a, an application process yeah an application process so um the girl in ireland my friend introduced me to a girl in uh sydney and um, that girl 
pointed me towards a team that she wasn't even on. And she said, apply for that role. And she referred me, which is part of the process. If you want to get a job in Google, the number one tip I can give you is get uh, onto someone who works in Google. They don't have to be on the team because if they refer you, I think it, it, there's an 80% figure somewhere. It's either 80% of the jobs given go to uh, referrals or 80% of referrals get the job. I can't remember which one it is, but either way, like get a referral. And so it doesn't guarantee you, but yeah, it definitely goes a very long way. Uh, it's because most jobs are put up internally before they're put up externally. And they give the Googlers, the people working there, probably a month or so to get someone in before they release it to the public. So it makes a big difference. However. And also they get, they get a grant. So like that girl, Kira, literally got a grant. She went to Bali with the money she got from referring me in. So like they, even if you don't know them, they want to hear from you for sure. Brilliant. And I, I just have a question on that. Obviously, Google is one of the, has a lot of prestige around it and it's a huge company. And just wondering what you think the importance of kind of verifying yourself by working with a large company, you know, if you were to go elsewhere and verifying yourself early in your career, you know, you have the stamp of approval that Google let you in. So would that help you to go to anywhere else potentially, you know, if you decided to move on? If you asked me that question two years ago, I would have said yes, and straight yes, move on. Now what I've realized, I break companies into three, and I'm sure there's much finer ways to break them up. But just for my little world, uh, I break them into three. So you've got startups, what I would classify as probably like less than 50 people. Then you have scale-ups that might go from 50 to probably 1,000 people or a bit less, like series A to series C or D kind of thing where there's a lot of systems in place and a lot of layers of hierarchy between you and the founder or you and the CEO. And then you've got conglomerates like Google. If you come along to, and I work for a scale-up that used to be a startup. So I joined as a startup, went into scale-up phase. That's why I appreciate the difference in those categorizations because it's a dramatically different setup now to what it was at the start. If you asked me that question two years ago, I said absolutely yes. Now I know that for a company like Fivetran, Two years ago when it joined, uh, when I joined and there were 70 people, we would not really have appreciated someone from Google that much because it's a different skill set. It's a startup. It's someone from Google comes in and needs their hand held, held on every process or uh, is used to kind of having really formulaic ways of doing things, this sort of thing. It's a different sport to being in a startup and saying, well, I can't ping the founder. She's busy. I'm going to just figure this out myself. And if you're doing a deal, do your own legals on the deal kind of thing and just get approval afterwards. Like that would never happen in Google. Whereas in startups, that has to happen because the resources are so constrained. Some people hate startups. Some people hate conglomerates. Uh, and different people are suited skill set wise to different things. So to go to your question, does it validate you? Yes, it validates you for conglomerates. It might validate you for scale ups because that's where they're trying to go. But it doesn't validate you for startups. Really interesting answer there. And, and just on Google, obviously, coming back to that culture fit, like, what was it like? What was the experience like working there, like, outside of the job? How did they had to develop you as a person? Or, or is there any of that? Is it kind of all a facade? Yeah, no, God, no. Like, it was too bloody good. It was, uh, there was, there's so much going on there. And that, so when I left, people said, oh, he's going to go to South America to find himself. That was incorrect. I found myself in Google because Google is the perfect place to find yourself. Google has so much going on. It's like a college. It has a society for everything. Like there was literally a salsa dance, uh, salsa society in the Sydney office. Like it's, there's so much on there. It's nuts. And 
as well as just the friends and the general crack and all the kind of usual stuff that uh, you hear of, that is all very, very real. Um, what I got the most out of it was there's this culture, this environment, and I can't speak to every office. I'm sure they're all very different and I know they are. Sydney's a particularly friendly office because people are there for the quality of life, not necessarily as much for career progression as you would be in like New York or Dublin or whatever. But people really encourage you to go and find your strengths and find what you're interested in doing. Uh, someone heard, I think, my heart story and said, oh, you should tell that to the team. You should tell the bigger team, bigger team, bigger team, bigger team. Like seven events later, I was doing the national conference. I was emceeing and interviewing the global CEO of Domino's and all this sort of stuff. That would never have happened in I maybe any other company at all. And it was after that event that someone said, hey, you should do this for a living. And again, that's so Google, just saying like, hey, like, fuck it, give it a crack. And that was a really cool environment to be in. And I think if I was in any other environment, I probably wouldn't have uh, done some of the things I've done since. Google has made it all really possible and encouraged me and, and supported me along the way. Really interesting insight there. And just just coming back to to kind of grad life and a bit more into what was your earliest vision of grad life. Um, you kind of left Google and, and I suppose you, you probably had the idea for grad life ever since you started in the investment bank, or is it, would that be accurate? Yeah, it was towards the end of the investment bank. What I noticed was that um, I, was, I was just devoid of confidence. And I'm like generally a pretty confident guy. And I'd, I'd lost so much confidence because I knew I wasn't good at my job and I wasn't happy there. And I was meeting these other young people. And I was like, this bastard, I bet is good at his job. And like, I just I really had this self-defeating narrative. I said, hang on ask him and find out about his job and find out what he doesn't like and what he does like and so on. So it really started off before the podcast. Grad life was very much like a little personal project of mine where I was deliberately asking people, like cornering them at parties and asking them what their life was like because I was trying to solve mine. And then I was like, I'm going to record these conversations. I'm just going to ask my friends. The first five or 10 episodes of grad life were just me chatting to my closest friends out of Sydney. And, um, yeah, I'd record it, put it up, and I was writing a blog at that stage, also just trying to figure it out. And friends are like, oh, the podcast is class. Like, will you do one on X, Y, or Z? Will you do one on marketing? Or, hey, I want to get into Google. Will you interview the HR team? And it grew like that, which was really cool. So that was definitely the, uh, the genesis of Grad Life, for sure. And that happened, yes, the conversations, the personal project toward the end of Macquarie, and then the podcast shortly after joining Google. Brilliant, then. Uh, I know you obviously you obviously have the the podcast live, and I've listened to a lot of episodes myself. It's really valuable, so I'd recommend it to everyone. But but you do more than that. Do you want to just go into a little bit more about what you're kind of doing about at the moment and what Grad Life is all about? Yeah, for sure. So uh, there's the podcast, which is definitely the main thing, and um, I guess it was my favorite thing. My favorite thing over the last year. We went from my favorite thing went from being the podcast to talks and companies. I used to love going to the companies and doing talks. I still do it, and I still love it. But my favorite thing now is actually uh, the group sessions of career guidance. So it started off with just doing one-to-ones and that sort of thing. And then as I got busier with Fivetran and took on more responsibility there, those hours became harder to carve out and also harder to justify like the low cost of career guidance I was given. Because I didn't want it just to be like uh, doing the, uh, working with the kids of the richest families in Ireland and stuff. I wanted to be relatively affordable. So I've started doing group sessions now. We'd have like five sessions around and having good discussions. And it's very engaging. You see the people learn from each other. And uh, yeah, that's been my favorite bits. And like seeing that energy, like I think grad life is a style of energy where people are trying to figure out what they're going to do. There's a mix between 
they're bursting at the seams to accomplish something, but they're also very insecure about what they can accomplish. That's a weird style energy. And to see young people uh, share that around and really be open about that and see them all get fired up, which they usually do, is a really cool thing. Nice. Uh, what would you say? You don't you, like, I know there's a lot of guidance counselors for, say, secondary school going into college, but I haven't really heard of many from college graduating into uh, the real world, I suppose. And it, it seems like a no brainer. But the only other kind of competition I could see for you is kind of career guidance. Um, career guidance counselors maybe in in college but what what do you reckon your usp would be not that there's much competition there but what do you reckon your usp would be that you can offer that that they wouldn't necessarily offer uh one is you probably well i'm gonna i was gonna play the youth card but let me be classier than that (laughs) i've worked in tech and uh i kind of know what it's like and i know what all the different jobs are like and i've literally gone burrowing through it with grad life for the last couple of years so i'd say i've got a good grasp of where things are, where they've been, and where they're going. Um, and can tell you, like, oh, I go into a company like that, my friend's in there, it's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be or whatever. It's better than it's cracked up to be. Now, I know that ecosystem. I have a mentor who works there. They're going places, join them. You wouldn't get that kind of insight maybe in, in a college-based uh, one. And the, most of those people are career guidance counselors. They went and did a, probably a course in guidance counseling like 30 years ago or something. And I don't want to thrash them here, so I actually don't want to spend too long on this, but... Like it's, it's experience. I'm kind of like, I'm really passionate about this as opposed to, I did a course 30 years ago. I don't know what Google does. And, um, you know, it, I would say they're pretty, yeah, chalk and cheese. That's cool. my uh, And just getting into the kind of nitty gritty of it now, maybe um, what, what are some of the common mistakes you might see recent graduates make when they leave college? Like, you know, maybe go into a bit of detail on like joining a small company versus a big company. I know you touched on previously and and maybe kind of like going for prestige and trying to get into the most prestigious company around rather than maybe settling for an SME in in some regards. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to go with one, two, three answers. And if I think of more, I'll go with them. So mistake number one, chasing early money. And I did this. Uh, I went in, I got paid probably twice or three times as much in Macquarie as I would have had I taken jobs in Ireland. And it was class, like it was unbelievable. But then I had, I did two years there and then I went, hang on, this isn't for me. And while my boss's boss made 15 million and I think I'm going to do that in 20 years time, I'm not because someone is going to come in and love this shit way more than I do. And she or he is going to stay later and enjoy it more and get more done per hour and just really revel in it while I'm going to have to convince myself to stay past seven every night. And eventually, in the long run, that person is going to make that 15 million. I'm going to be left with nothing. And, so, and that's true. And so me chasing early money in the, wrong, in the wrong field or sport wasn't a good idea. So that's chasing early money is definitely uh, a big one. Another, and I'm, this is going to be a segue into something else, but we won't follow the segue fully. Just if people are listening and, and they have a pen and paper, the way I run a lot of the sessions, I would base uh, the first couple of minutes off this impact model where you have all graduates want uh, roughly seven or eight things, intellectual stimulation, money, purpose, prestige, autonomy, culture and community, and travel. Everyone wants those things, of course. They're all awesome rewards from work. The problem is, and this is my answer, number two, people go for all of those at once. And they end up just getting kind of like paralyzed by indecision because like, oh, well, I could do the investment bank and make good money, but then I'd have no purpose. I could do the charity and have good purpose, but then I make no money. And they just kind of drive themselves mad looking for each out of the single job. 
And the hack that I would uh, recommend and do recommend, pick one or two. You can't have it all out of a single job. Pick one or two. Pick, for me, I picked money and travel. And I said, Mark, if you really care about having a purpose, you'll care enough to do something about it in your extra time. And I did. I volunteered in suit kitchen in Sydney. And that absolutely ticked off the purpose box. And so by going for everything, you're going to end up with nothing. By going for the top one, two, or three, and then choosing how much you care about number three, four, five, that's how you can uh, have them all. And then lastly, going with the path that is just recommended to you by, uh, I was going to say someone else, usually by a different generation. To have a really successful career in Ireland used to be, you probably have to be qualified as an accountant. Uh, if you want to, let's just say, whatever your definition of success is, if you wanted to be a CEO in Ireland 20, 30 years ago, you had to be a qualified accountant. Even if you were doing something that had nothing to do with accounting, it was just a cultural thing. If you want to be a CEO in America, in a tech company, you would need to come from either sales or sometimes in the earlier stages, the tech part of it. But usually by the time it's like a scale up on a, uh, a public company or going IPOing, it will be someone from account management or sales because they, they're used to presenting the company and being the face of it. That shift is now happening in Ireland as well, where a lot of the biggest companies have technological divisions that are driving their growth or they are just straight up tech companies and they come from different backgrounds. You no longer need to be an accountant. There are tectonic shifts and changes that have happened over the decades like that, that the people who are advising you may not have caught up to yet. And that's costly. And that's a mistake number three, is applying advice for the 70s, 80s, 90s to the 2010s, 20s, 30s. Really in-depth answer. I hope, hopefully people have a pen and paper out. Um, it's it's uh, very intriguing indeed. I mean, my follow-on question from it is um, kind of when choosing a job, I think a lot of people are told, you know, by maybe gurus or something like that, that like in an ideal, in an ideal world where money's not an issue, what job would you be doing and just do what you love? But obviously money is an issue and it's it's kind of brings it around this balance of money and following your passion and and what you really want to do. So how, like, and maybe feeding into your values and stuff like that, how, how would you kind of advise someone to go, go towards something they want to do while still kind of ticking that money box as well? Um, yeah, there's definitely a balance there. And it's, it, to be a purist usually costs money. So if you want, like, not even a purist in terms of charity or social good, or couldn't be a pure mathematician. Like I have a friend who was a purist mathematician and uh, he wants to make money, but he's too much of a purist. He's probably going to end up being a maths lecturer unless I successfully bastardize him and get him working in a quantitative hedge fund for a couple of years, make a few bob, and then go off and be uh, a maths professor. So you kind of need to, A, evaluate, am I a full purist on this, or am I willing to sacrifice it a little bit um, to, to make a few bob and get myself set up? I had a problem with this. I'm not immune from this stuff either. I, I read uh, Samantha Power's book recently, which is unbelievable. I definitely recommend it to anyone. She's a US politician, well, Irish US. And afterwards I was like, God damn, like I'm selling software here. I need to start doing something bigger uh, and more societal. And I have a good and very wise friend who said, well, Maxwell, have you tried to do that now? There's gonna be someone much better than you at setting up an NGO or running XYZ. But you're on a path where if you can make a few bob over the next couple of years, your impact can be just multiplied by your contributions to these things and the weight you add or that you, if you uh, give a few bob to it, that that would add. So there's a strategy for this. 
if you want both, which I do, uh, you kind of have to, you know, if, if ever you're going to walk forward, you walk your left foot and then your right. And if you want to walk forward towards achieving both of these things over 30 years, you're going to have to do, you put your right left foot first over the first 10, 15, 20 of those years, and then your right foot forward and you'll end up where you wanted to be. If you tried to end up, if you tried to walk with both feet at the same time, probably going to fall over. And that happens to a lot of people as well. And I think just there's an acceptance associated with that. There's probably a basic level of uh, impact or doing good that you can do that will just scratch that itch for now until you're in a position to, to multiply. My, my follow-on question is a bit of a counter to that. It's kind of saying like, well, this is my perspective of it and I'm, I'm a few years younger than you. So maybe you have a, a different perspective on it. But um, it, it basically is that you kind of see your 20s as you're, you're pretty much free. You, do, you don't have a huge amount of commitment. But if you're settling, you know, I feel like society pushes you to settle for getting a job and you're kind of in cruise control through your 20s and you might not necessarily get, get to tick off all the things on the impact model. Uh, and you, you kind of say, okay, I'll save up my money. And when I'm 30, I will have more money to be able to do X or make an impact. But then the kind of constraints of, of life will, will kind of gather around. You have bills to pay. You'll have a bit more commitment. Um, you might have a family and, and suddenly the chains are around you and you didn't really feel them coming around you. And then you don't have, um, you don't have the freedom to do what you want anymore because you're responsible for so many other things. Um, so I think that would be the counter argument to it. But do you feel like that, that, that you should it, it maybe use it as motivation to do more in your 20s um, of what you want to do rather than focus on money? Yeah, I think so. And I also think if you have, like if you're trying to line this up, there tends to be kind of three reasons I reckon people do things or are driven to do them. The purpose, the process, or the price. The purpose is I'm going to go build a school in Africa. So there's a, a school built in Africa and those kids have education. That's great. The process is I love building schools. I don't care where it is. I don't care about the kids getting educated. I just want to go through the process of building a school. That really uh, gets me going. And then the prize is if I build a school anywhere, I'll get well paid for it or I'll get uh, public, uh, what's it called, recognition for it. And so if you're working off the process and you love the process, follow that love because you will become better at building schools than anyone else. Because again, like that imaginary lady that joined me in Macquarie, she would have outworked me, she would have done much better and she would have made the 15 million. Um, that's if you're a process and you're doing it because it's something that you love doing. If it's an outcome you want to see, then it's going to be slightly different. And that's where I think, uh, I think your argument comes in of just trying to do as much as you can in your 20s. That's kind of what I've done. That has cost me uh, definitely in, in various different ways, I'd say, over the last couple of years. And I've even noticed there was one big project that I had to drop completely. And then I get annoyed about it now and then. I literally got annoyed about it today that I haven't been doing anything on it. But I couldn't have... Uh, achieved what I've achieved today with Fivetran if I had focused on that other project at the same time. So I guess that's just part of it is, is making these decisions and, and living with them. Definitely, yeah. And, and just being aware of the options that are available to you rather than settling before you, uh, you kind of realize it. Yeah. Um, just, just with regard to grad life, um, where, where do you see your vision going or, or is, is the ambition to grow it? Or are you kind of happy where you're at now or, or what do you see for the next few years? Uh, that <laughs> pretty much ask myself that every morning. The dream, I think, and from getting to know the founder of Five Term, which has been a real pleasure, it also drives me nuts because I, when I see him, I'm like, that's where I want to be. Uh, I think it has the real opportunity to be 
uh, a full-on tech-driven grad recruitment platform. If you look at recruitment, a recruitment company is placing a senior oil executive one day and a junior marketing executive the next day and a fruit deliverer the day after. It, it, it's all over the place. There's no coherent data set that allows you to drive anything or get much insight. If you look at graduate recruitment, there's in Ireland 69,000 of them heading out the gate every single year in the exact same position. That's a perfect platform for you to do some real data gathering and analysis. And what I kind of envision, and I have the, the plans for it, and I'm kind of working on it at the moment, is this platform that will look at, say, uh, Simon Meyer goes into KPMG and is really good. Mark Maxwell goes into KPMG and is really bad. Uh, what makes Simon Simon? What makes Mark Mark? Where does Mark do better? Does he do well in Lidl or Aldi? Yes, he does. Okay. KPMG, you pay us X amount a year and we'll give you a bunch of Simon Mars from as diverse a pool as possible. Uh, Lidl or Aldi, we'll give you a bunch of Mark Maxwells from as diverse a pool as possible. You have therein massively cut the fat out of the grad recruitment process for those companies and also provided career guidance, data-driven career guidance to those students. I think that's the way it's going. I want to be the one to do it. Um, and that's what I'm driven to do with Bradley. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sounds really exciting. Um, just if you could go back to talk to your 20-year-old self, is there anything you might advise him to do? Um, he wanted to set up a, a salad bar at the front of the Queen School in UCD. He was actually really looking into it. Uh, so I would push him to just do that. I, I don't know where he would have gotten the money, but I would have said, like, look, do what you can to just give it a crack or take it as far as you can. He got very derailed when he heard that uh, that you needed all this kind of like food hygiene checks and this sort of thing, and it was going to be really hard to do. But I honestly wish he went a little bit further, and I think there would have been a ton to learn, both about entrepreneurship, but also the main thing coming out of that was, I think in that position, I would have met a lot of other people in that scene, and I would have benefited a lot from that over the years as well. Uh, I met a lot of young entrepreneurs when I went back to Ireland in 2018, and I was doing grad life full time. And I got so much out of that, including just friendships. But I think having that six years earlier would have really kind of uh, paid for itself over the years as well. So that would be the main thing. Brilliant. We're coming, coming slightly towards the end. So if anyone has any questions, just feel, to, feel free to pop them in the chat there and we can get to them after. But a couple more questions still to go. What's the coolest place you've traveled, Mark? Coolest place I have traveled. God, uh, I've been pretty lucky with the travel. I liked, bam, bam, bam. I love Chile. I actually really enjoyed my time in Chile. I went up the coast of Chile and southern Argentina as well. I went across uh, that part and I did it on my own and I loved it. Uh, that was class. Nice, nice. Uh, how did you find solo traveling? Deadly. My favorite thing to do by a mile, honestly. I've done it several times now. I've done, uh, I'd say, five or six trips on my own. And I just, I don't know, I like, I like being on my own. I think it's important to like being on your own and to like yourself that much. And you get a lot of writing and thinking done. And um, yeah, I, like I, even during quarantine, I did a month in Spain on my own. Um, I'm like, I'm actively disinviting people from these trips. I honestly just want them to be solo. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. I'd recommend it to anyone. I suppose the Spanish and the, and the salsa probably help as well. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. And just final question, um, any recommended books other than the one you've written yourself? So for, uh, for the audience that don't know, Mark has written a book called uh, 
death my guidance counselor um so if you want to check that out just a bit more about mark but for mark any any book recommendations for for the audience yeah um number one would be uh, kind of depends on the age but if you were i, I think shantaram shantaram i've gifted it to about four people who were turning 21 i think 20 or 21 uh it, it it was a huge book for me it's literally a huge book it's like 950 pages but it, sh it showed me how big the world was and how impossible not just hard but pretty much impossible it was to be an a, a proper failure in life so and it's also just an incredible story and ridiculously well written so i would definitely recommend shantaram and i would also recommend this is a bit of a uh, cliched one but the alchemist by paulo coelho and almost anything by paulo coelho um is right up my alley as well so they're two key ones. If you're in the business, uh, Phil Knight's book, uh, Shoe Dog is really good as well. Um, I can see my stack of books over there. I'm trying to think. So some of the powers one was very good. Yeah, I'll think of more. I'll just blurt them out if, I, uh, <laughs> if they come to me. Brilliant, brilliant. So it might open up to the floor. There's a couple of questions coming in. Um, so first one has come to me. Uh, how do you deal with procrastination and not being productive 100% of the time? Funny. Again, ask me four years ago, I would have said, oh, I don't do procrastination. I'm all on, whatever. Uh, procrastination is great. I actually love it. Um, it's very, it's just healthy. Like I went to a retreat a couple of years ago in Sydney and they talked about this thing where if you are lighting a fire and you stack block on block on block on block of wood, there's no air. The fire actually can't breathe and it doesn't get going and it doesn't burn brightly. You need to leave gaps between the wood in order for that, fire to breathe and to get access to air and to to reach its full potential that was a real lesson for me in and i just randomly i remember it five years on because it was such a profound lesson for me and uh, real productivity if you work like uh 60 70 on if you're tired for seven hours a day you're much better off working 100 for whatever four hours a day or five you do the math i don't know but like being on, on, and people feel that as well. If you're working, if I'm on a one-to-one, -one, which most of my life is now, is just meetings. If in those meetings, if I'm half tired and I haven't procrastinated enough and haven't gone for my walks in the park, that sort of thing. And it, it's not the same, particularly when you reach leadership and you are almost measured and defined by the impact you have on the people around you. If you're half asleep and deprived of... Uh, of uh, kind of creativity and that sort of thing which procrastination is about for me it's it's a killer it really is like i'm actually writing a second book at the moment a creative book and that is how i feel my procrastination and i can tell you i am way better at my day job because i do a bit of writing during the day and i get so fueled up and it's good air for the fire so embrace procrastination sorry that was really long interesting way. really interesting analogy there um next one is uh any suggestions for experienced graduates from outside Ireland doing a master's in Ireland about going uh, on the job hunt uh, in Ireland? Uh, it depends on the sphere. So firstly, I'm going to disclaimer, I'm by no means an expert on this, uh, on this topic. One thing I can tell you is that when I was in Sydney, the Irish card went a long way. It made me much more interesting, much more, uh, I don't want to use the word diverse, much more, it just set me aside. It gave me an opportunity to uh, show off my difference rather than kind of something I needed to defend and I would definitely encourage you guys to look at it from that angle as well there's a lot of personal growth that goes with uh, moving away particularly on your own if they are your circumstances uh, mature employers will identify that employers who have done it will identify with that as well and play to that 
tune for sure. That's a very powerful uh, personal story you've got. And uh, I think employers would value that increasingly over time. Really good answer. Um, Mark mentioned writing out a bucket list slash fear list. Uh, is this a common habit? And what sort of list would he recommend we do? Uh, well, with that week in Far North Queensland, I wrote the things I could do that week. So I literally, every, every night that week, I went into a restaurant, went up to a group of people at a table, not just one, a group, and said, guys, you mind if I join you? I'm traveling on my own. And you can imagine how nervous I was doing that at first, but you just get used to it. So I would start off with a doable, just like straight away doable, things you can actually just do the next day. And then maybe think about what you can do over a year. Uh, that's, uh, that's literally exactly what I did. I did the fear thing for that week alone. And then I came back on Saturday, quick Google Monday morning, because that was the last thing on the list. And um, then went off and literally started the business, wrote the book, bam, bam, bam. So I would think about it in those terms, if that helps. Just do it. Um, yeah. If you could do one grad program in Ireland right now, or if you could do one grad program right now, what would it be and why? Oh, Jesus. Uh, I actually shouldn't answer that because I've got proper corporate partners with Grad Life uh, who, each have, <laughs> who each have grad programs. So I'm, I, it would be a very bad idea for me to answer that. Uh, if I was to give any sort of useful answer, I would say, uh, it's not all about grad programs. Um, I actually didn't do a grad program. I was just a, a lonely graduate on my own. I was the youngest by 10 years on the floor. That was crap and lonely as hell, but again, was very good for personal development. So while I'm afraid I can't answer your question, um, I would recommend you to uh, think about big companies, scale up small companies, and think about what suits you the best. The, the, I could tell you that the KPMG program is the best. I could tell you the ESB program is the best. Neither of them would be true if I didn't know who you are, what your strengths are, what your personality traits are. Uh, so I'm actually kind of glad I'm not giving you a straight, because I barely even have a straight answer for that. Anyway. Cool. Um, uh, it seems to me that your 20s is a time where you set your career trajectory. And if you don't get kicked off it, then example with starting a, a business. Um, sorry, it's much harder to do it later. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Uh, regardless of what I think, I know there's stats on this because a VC friend of mine told me them recently. He told me that you've got two batches of successful founders generally. If you look at founder success on a graph and success versus age, you've got a batch down here who started in their early 20s who had nothing to lose, exactly what this uh, person is suggesting. And you've got a batch in their 40s who went through their 20s, made a name for themselves or you know, got a base level of knowledge, did the whole family thing, and then knew exactly what they're doing, had a network in the area, uh, like just knew the ins and outs, knew what the game was like 20 years ago, know where it's going, therefore. And so they hit a lot of success in their 40s. The reason nobody does in the 30s is because mortgage, family, that whole thing. And so I found that very interesting. So look, you make a point. Uh, there's data backing you up and there's data on the other side of your 30s as well. Good to know there's something on the horizon anyway. And we might finish up after this question. Um, how did you find grinding it out on your own uh, while working another job, how tough was it to motivate yourself? Uh, hard, definitely hard at times. Um, I'm a bit of a dopamine addict. I love from sport and from work. I just love like a win. And so it's getting those wins that has definitely kept me going. Um, if you type in, I can't remember what it is. If you type in P Diddy sale or something into YouTube or P Diddy phone into YouTube, you'll see what dopamine looks like. He gets this deal 
and he slams the phone and he like trashes the room. He's so excited. I'm like that when I get a grad life sponsorship deal or something like that. It's such a buzz. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, geez, I have to get up at six now and go and do a bit of grad life for a while. And I don't do that all the time by any means. I, I would love if I did that all the time, but I don't the discipline. Um, it is, it's very hard. But like at the end of the day, if I die in a couple of years, touch wood, I know that grad life gives me the opportunity to at least say I did something for a lot of young people. And that is the ultimate driver. I don't really need the money. Thankfully, again, touch wood, Firetran pays and tech pays relatively well. So I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm not doing it for public recognition, right? I'm doing it for that hour I get to sit in front of a person or a young or a bunch of people or a whole group of people in a company. And uh, because that is my driver, it doesn't kind of take that much motivation and it doesn't feel that much like work. Interesting thing. And I would actually, this lesson that I learned as opposed to hearing, uh, I would pass on for sure. At the end of a day of five tram in Dublin, when I was in that office, I would be absolutely wrecked. Like I'd be so, you know, when you meet someone, the life is out of them. They're just totally gone. I'd be like that at 6 or 7 p.m. after working. I used to go in at 5 to write the book and then uh, start working and everything. So I'd be absolutely bollocked. <laughs> I, um, I would then have to go downstairs and meet this career guidance person. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I have to do a session now for an hour and give them my all because that's what they're paying for. And at a quarter past 7, if the session started at 7, at a quarter past seven, I'd be bouncing around the room. I would honestly be so fired up that I would go back up after the session and do another hour for five times. Like it energized me that much. True story multiplied by, I'd say 50. I'd say it happened 50 times last year where I literally went back upstairs to do more work because it fired me up that much. I wasn't doing it for money. I wasn't doing it for anything else. It literally gave me that much energy. If you can find something like that, I think you're going to uh, do relatively well Nice one. Uh, I think we might we might leave it there, just in the interest of time. But Mark, um, where would people, where should people find you? Where should they re reach out to you? What kind of people should reach out to you? Maybe all people should reach out. Um, <laughs> where can you find me? The website is mrgradlife.com. Uh, that's about change over the in December, but uh, that's where you get me for now. Mrgradlife at gmail.com is the email. Mark at fivetran.com. LinkedIn, uh, I think M Maxwell nine two on both LinkedIn and Instagram, and of course the Grad Life Instagram, which is just Grad Life on Instagram. So and yeah, Grad Life podcast as well on, on Spotify is a good shout as well. Exactly. So uh, loads of places. Love talking to uh, to young people what, about what they're going to do. So for sure, uh, hit me up. Brilliant. Well, thanks a million for joining us, Mark. Uh, I think you gave Thank a you. lot of key insights there, and hopefully people uh, got some takeaways from it. It's been great. Thanks a million. Best of luck, guys.